I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. You can unlock the entire LRB archive for free for 24 hours by visiting lrb.co.uk forward slash open. In 1915, the American writer Charlotte Perkins Gilman published a funny but unsettling story called Herland. And that title hints um, that it's a fantasy about a nation of women, and women only. That has existed for 2,000 years in some remote, still unexplored part of the globe, and it's a magnificent utopia. It's collaborative, it's peaceful. Even the cats have stopped killing the birds in Herland. It's clean and tidy, it's brilliantly organised in absolutely everything from its sustainable agriculture and delicious food to its social services and education. And it all depended on one miraculous innovation. At the very beginning of its history, the founding mothers of Herland had somehow perfected the technique of parthenogenesis. Now, the practical details are left a bit unclear, I have to say, uh, but the women somehow simply gave birth to baby girls with no intervention from men whatsoever. There was absolutely no sex in her land. The story is all about the disruption of this women's world, when three American blokes discover it. There's Van Dyke Jennings, the nice guy narrator. There's Jeff Margrave, a man whose gallantry is almost his undoing in front of so many ladies. And then there is the truly appalling Terry Nicholson. Now, when they first arrive, Terry refuses to believe that there really aren't some men hiding somewhere, pulling the strings. Because how, after all, he said, could you imagine women running anything? When eventually Terry has to accept that it is exactly what the women are doing, he then decides that what Herland needs is a bit of sex and a bit of male mastery. And the story ends with Terry ignominiously deported after one of his bids for mastery in the bedroom, and you can guess how it went, goes horribly wrong. Now, there are all kinds of ironies in Perkins Gilmore's tale. One joke that she plays throughout is that the women simply don't recognise their own achievements. They have independently created an exemplary state, one you could be really proud of. But when they're confronted by these three male visitors who, like 
somewhere on the spectrum, frankly, between spineless and scumbag, they tend always to defer to the male competence, knowledge and expertise. And they look slightly in awe at the male world outside. The point is, although they've actually made a utopia, these women think they've messed up. Now, I've started with Herland, and I'm going to come back to it at the end, because it nicely raises some of the topics that I've got on my agenda this evening, from imaginary communities of women doing things their way, to bigger questions of knowing how we recognise female power, and the sometimes funny and sometimes honestly frightening stories that we tell ourselves about female power, and indeed have told ourselves about it, in the West at least, for thousands of years. Now, I've talked before, uh, as Nicholas said, about the ways that women get silenced in public discourse. And there's plenty of that silencing still going on. A perfect example of that would be Senator Elizabeth Warren being prevented a few weeks ago from reading out Coretta Scott King's letter in the US Senate. Now, what was extraordinary about that occasion was not only that she was not allowed to use her voice to do that and was actually formally excluded from the debate, and you know, actually I don't know enough about the rules of the US Senate to know how justified or not that was, what I thought was extraordinary was the fact that several men over the next couple of days did read the letter out and were neither excluded nor shut up. Now, okay, they were trying to support Warren, but the rules of speech that applied to her didn't appear to apply to Bernie Sanders or the three other male senators who did the same. I also didn't much like the supportive hashtag that came out after it, which was, let Liz speak. And I thought, well, heart's in the right place, but I wonder if Elizabeth Warren, you know, grand senator, calls herself Liz very often. I doubt it. Anyway, that right to be heard is crucially important. But what I want to do in this lecture is to widen the frame of reference, to think more generally about how we have learned to look at women who exercise power or try to. I want to explore the cultural underpinnings of misogyny in politics and the workplace, and I want to explore its forms a bit. You know, what kind of misogyny aimed at what or whom, using what words and images and with what effect. Misogyny is a very blanket term, which on its own, I think, doesn't get you very far. And I want to think harder about how and why the conventional definitions of power that we carry around in our heads, or for that matter, the conventional definitions of knowledge, expertise, and authority have tended to exclude women. Now, I know they've tended to exclude others too, and I haven't forgotten about the others, but uh, my brief tonight is to talk about women. Now, it is obviously and happily the case that in 2017, 
there are more women in what we would all probably agree were powerful positions than there were 10, certainly 50 years ago. Whether that's as politicians, as police commissioners, as CEOs, judges, or whatever, it's still a clear minority, but there are more of them. And if you want some figures, around, I think, 4% of UK MPs were women in the 1970s, around 30% now are. And we have, in fact, just passed a major milestone when a woman was elected in the Copeland by-election, when for the first time, it has ceased to be true that there are more men currently sitting as MPs than there have ever been female MPs, right? There are now historically more women who have once been elected to Parliament than those men that are currently there. Now, that fits, I think, um, that rather gloomy factoid, although it has its kind of upside, that fits my basic premise that our mental and cultural template for a powerful person remains resolutely male, whatever the improvements on the ground. That's to say, if we close our eyes and try to conjure up the image of a president, or for that matter, to move into the knowledge economy, a professor, what most of us see is not a woman. And that's just as true, I can promise you, even if you are a female professor. The cultural stereotype, I think, is so strong that at the level of those close-your-eyes fantasies, it is still hard for me to imagine me, or someone like me, in my role. Now, I actually had a bit of fun, uh, and I put the phrase cartoon professor into Google Images, UK Google Images. I chose cartoon professor in order to make sure I was targeting the imaginary ones. Out of the first 100 images of cartoon professors that came up, how many do you think were female? Just one. There's a selection. The sole female professor is on the bottom right. Um, she is Professor Holly from Pokemon Farm. Yeah. I mean, they're also frightfully scientific, aren't they? I mean, you obviously have to look for a professor in a lab, not a library. But to put this the other way around, to flip it, we have no template for what a powerful woman might look like, except that she probably looks rather like a man. Now, as you see... The regulation trouser suits, or at least trousers, worn by so many Western female political leaders, from Merkel to Clinton, may indeed be convenient and practical. They may also be a fairly strong signal of a refusal to become a clothes horse, which is the fate of so many uh, political wives. But they're also a very simple tactic, like lowering the timbre of the voice to make the female appear more male, and so 
to fit the part of power. Uh, Elizabeth I already knew exactly what the game was when she said that she had the heart and stomach of a king. Now, it's that idea of the divorce between women and power that must underlie the effectiveness of those brilliant Melissa McCarthy parodies on Saturday Night Live of the White House press secretary, Sean Spicer, right? Now, it is said, deliciously, that these have annoyed President Trump more than most satires on his regime because, according to one of those, quotes, sources close to him, quotes, he doesn't like his people to appear weak. Now, if you decode that, what that actually means is that he doesn't like his men to be parodied by and as women. Weakness always comes with a female gender attached to it. Now, what follows from that, the next stage, is it seems to me that women are still perceived as somehow belonging on the outside of power. Now, whether we sincerely want to uh, get them onto the inside of power, as I imagine that most of us here do, I mean, I, uh, I may be doing you a disservice, but I don't think that actually many people come to listen to lectures on uh, women in power who really think it's a very bad idea. I think you're probably paid up supporters of this notion. Or whether, on the other hand, by various, and they're often unconscious means, we somehow are the people who cast women as interlopers when they make it. And you know, I can still remember uh, when, in most Cambridge colleges, that the women's loos were almost always kind of tucked away across two courtyards through a passage and down in the basement. And you kind of wondered whether there was a message there about whether you belonged. But whatever side you're on, consciously or unconsciously, the shared metaphors we use of female access to power, you know, knocking on the door, storming the citadel, smashing the glass ceiling, or just giving them a leg up, all those metaphors underline female exteriority. Look, women in power are seen as having to break down barriers, or alternatively, alternatively, they're seen as if they're taking something to which they're not quite naturally entitled. Now, a headline in the Times in early January captured this brilliantly. Above an article reporting on the possibility that women might soon gain the positions of Metropolitan Police Commissioner and Chair of the BBC Trust and become Bishop of London, the headline read, Women Prepare for a Power Grab in Church, Police and BBC. <laughs> and under the headline here you can see the estimable Cressida Dick, um, who, as the new commissioner of the Met, is actually the only one of those predictions yet to have come true. Now, I realise that headline writers are paid to grab attention, 
But the idea that even given that, you could possibly present the prospect of a woman becoming Bishop of London as a power grab, right? And the fact that, well, probably thousands upon thousands of readers did not bat an eyelid when they looked at that headline. That is both completely laughable, but it's also a sure sign that we need to look a lot more carefully at our cultural assumptions about women's relationship to power. Workplace nurseries, family-friendly hours, mentoring schemes, and all those practical things are very important. They're very enabling, but they are only part of what we need to be doing. If we want to give women as a gender, and I'm thinking here not just in terms of a, a few determined individuals, if we want to give women as a gender their place on the inside of the structures of power, we have to think harder about how and why we think about that as we do. If there is a cultural template which works to disempower women, what exactly is that template and where do we get it from? Now, to help answer that and to put some of the issues I hope into sharper focus, uh, uh, it won't surprise you that I'm going to take us back for a few minutes to the world of ancient Greece and to the very earliest layers of Western culture that we can still easily take a good look at. Now, I should say here, I don't for a minute want to suggest that the classical inheritance is the only inheritance that we have in the West. You know, thank heavens it isn't, right? But the classical world does still provide us with some of the main building blocks of the modern debates, particularly over gender. And it is still deeply embedded in our narratives, in our symbols, and in our art. And more often than I think we may realise, and I'm hoping to show you in sometimes quite shocking ways, we are still using particularly Greek idioms, to represent to ourselves the idea of women in and more often out of power. And I think it helps us understand ourselves if we take a more careful look at what the Greeks were going on about. Now, there is at first sight um, a rather impressive array of powerful female characters in the repertoire of Greek myth and Greek storytelling. In real life, ancient women had no formal political rights, they had precious little economic or social independence, and in some cities such as Athens, respectable married women were almost never seen outside the home. But Athenian drama in particular, and the Greek imagination more generally, has offered our imaginations, a whole series of unforgettable women. Names like Medea, Clytemnestra, or Antigone, among many others, can still ring a loud bell for us. They are not, however, role models for anybody. Far from it. For the most part, if you look harder at their stories, they are portrayed as abusers of power 
not as users of it. They take it when they take it illegitimately, and that power grab, in that sense, leads to chaos, to the fracture of the state, it leads to death, destruction. These are monstrous hybrids who are not really women in the Greek sense of the word at all, and the unflinching logic of their stories is that they must be disempowered and put back in their place. In fact, it's the mess that women make of power in Greek myth and storytelling that actually justifies their exclusion from it in real life and justifies the rule of men. Uh, I can't help but thinking that actually uh, Perkins Gilman was slightly parodying this logic when she made the women of her land themselves believe quite wrongly that they had messed up. The idea of women messing up with power is terribly, terribly important. If you go back, for example, to one of the very earliest Greek dramas to survive, the Agamemnon of Aeschylus, which was first performed in 458 BC, you'll find that its anti-heroine Clytemnestra horribly encapsulates that ideology. In the play, she becomes the effective ruler of her city while her husband is away fighting the Trojan War. But in the process, she ceases to be a woman in the Greek sense. And Aeschylus repeatedly uses male terms and the language of masculinity to refer to her. In some of the very first lines of the play, uh, her character is described as androboulon. That's a really hard word to translate uh, very neatly, but that means something like with manly purpose, uh, thinking like a man. It's the androbit, which means man. And it's what I think that Frederick Layton is trying to capture here in what is a really very male depiction of Clytemnestra. And of course, the power that Clytemnestra illegitimately claims is put to destructive purpose as she brutally murders Agamemnon in his bath when he comes back home. And the patriarchal order is only later restored when Clytemnestra's children successfully conspire to kill her. There's a, a similar logic too, I think, in the stories of that mythical race of um, warrior women uh, known as the Amazons, who were said by Greek writers to exist somewhere you couldn't quite really tell where, but somewhere up north on the northern borders of the Greek world. They were a, a decidedly more violent and more militaristic lot than the peaceful denizens of Herland. Uh, they were a monstrous regiment, really, who always threatened to overrun the civilised world of Greece and Greek men. Uh, here you see some in action, and I think it's not a coincidence that they're dressed in these very Persian-style onesies, is what it looks like. Um, uh, the Persians being uh, the defining historical enemy of the Greeks. Now, 
An enormous amount of modern feminist energy has, I am afraid, been wasted on trying to prove that these Amazons did once really exist with all the seductive possibilities that that might raise of a historical society that was once ruled by and for women. Dream on, I'm afraid. The hard truth is that the Amazons were a construct, <laughs> construct yes. the hard truth is that the Amazons were a construct of the Greek male mythic imagination. The basic message of the Amazons was that the only good Amazon was a dead one. Or if you want to go back to the awful Terry, the only good Amazon was one, alternatively, who had been mastered in the bedroom. Now, with wonderful economy, um, this vase in the British Museum um, is actually capturing both those lines. There's Achilles killing the Amazon queen, but at the moment of her death, they fall in love. So you've got sex and death all together, right? But the underlying point of principle was, and I think you can't, you, you can't stress this, I think, too much. The underlying point of principle was that it was the duty of men to save civilization from the rule of women. Right? Now, there are, it is true, occasional examples where it might look as if we're getting a rather more positive version of ancient female power in Greek culture and literature. And one great staple of the modern stage is Aristophanes' comedy, known by the name of its lead female character, Lysistrata. It was originally written a bit later in the 5th century BC, um, and it's become a popular choice because it appears to be a perfect mixture of highbrow classics, feisty feminism, a stop-the-war agenda with a good sprinkling of smut, right? And it was once famously translated by Germaine Greer, so it has got about everything, right? It's the story, as I'm sure you'll know, of a sex strike set not in the world of myth, like Greek tragedies are, but in the contemporary world of ancient Athens. Under Lysistrata's leadership, the women try to force their husbands to end the long-running war with Sparta by refusing to sleep with them until they do. Uh, that idea of a sex strike has had a long history in Western culture, never very successful. The men go round for most of the play with enormously inconvenient erections which tends to cause both difficulty and, I bet, great hilarity in the modern costume department. Um, you see uh, two versions here. This guy I've chosen, uh, he's trying very modestly to cover his erection up, um, but this is the kind of um, the squeezy bottle costume department model of the Lysistrata. This is the bendy sausage balloon, uh, I think. <laughs> it's a problem. 
Uh, and anyway, the end is, uh, in the fantasy, the end is well known and predictable. Unable to bear these encumbrances any longer, the men give in to the women's demands and they make peace. And so most modern productions try to tell us this is girl power at its finest and most ancient. The Greek goddess of wisdom, um, uh, Athena, the patron deity of the city of Athens itself, is also often brought in on the positive side of this Greek uh, imaginary of female power. Isn't the simple fact that she was female enough to suggest a more nuanced version of at least the imagined sphere of women's influence in Athens or Greece more generally. Now, I'm afraid not. If you scratch the surface and you go back to the 5th century context, Lysistrata, the play Lysistrata, certainly looks very different. It's not just that the original audience and actors consisted, according to Athenian conventions, entirely of men, we have to reckon that the women characters were probably played rather like very ridiculous pantomime dames with pillows down their chests to give them big boobs and pillows at the back to give them a big bum, um, not like um, uh, serious Mrs Pankhurst-type feminists. So you, you've got a very sort of burlesque version of what's going on, which is never what we see when we do it. But it's also the fact that in the end of the Lysistrata, the fantasy, and it is fantasy, of women's power is firmly stamped on. In the final scene of the drama, I think most people have gone to sleep by this point um, when they see a modern version. In the final scene of the drama, the peace process actually consists of bringing onto stage a naked woman, or actually a man somehow dressed up to be a naked woman. And she is used as if she were the map of Greece and she is metaphorically carved up in what is, I think, a very uncomfortably pornographic way between the Spartan men, right? You know, oh, I'll have that lovely breast and, you know, you take the buttock, that kind of bit. There is no proto-feminism in this. And as for Athena, it's true that in those binary charts of ancient Greek gods and goddesses that I had to learn up when I was at school. I suspect people don't anymore. Um, she appears on the female side. You've got gods down one side, goddesses down the other, and Athena's on the goddess side. The crucial thing about her in her ancient context is that she is another of those very difficult and sometimes worrying hybrids. She is not a woman in the Greek sense at all. For a start, she's dressed as a warrior when fighting was exclusively male work, and that also has to be an underlying problem with the Amazons. Then she's a virgin when the raison d'etre of the female sex was solely the breeding of new citizens. And she was not even born of any mother herself, but she popped directly 
out of the head of her father, Zeus. And here she is managing it uh, on a Greek pot. She's coming out here, Zeus very calmly giving birth. Um, it's a scene that's rather defeated um, most modern artists, I'm, I'm afraid. I mean, these, these two could only be done by men. You know. Only a man could think that childbirth from the head was just a bit like having a bad headache, I think. That's... So in that story, in that kind of, you know, the whole thing put together, you'd better read Athena whether she's a woman or not, better read her as offering a glimpse of an ideal male world in which women couldn't, well, weren't just to be kept in their place, but you could imagine they might be dispensed with entirely. She's a fantastic male patriarchal symbol. Uh, she wasn't a mother. She didn't even need to have a mother, you know, that, that is whiting out the role of women in the ancient world. Now that point is a simple one, I think, but it's very important. I mean, what we're seeing here is that if we go back to the beginnings of Western history, we find a radical and unbridgeable separation, both real, cultural, and imaginary, between women and power. Or to put it in another way, you know, at the origins of our literary and storytelling tradition, we've got that separation firmly embedded. But there's one item of Athena's costume that really brings this very vividly right up to our own day. On most images of the goddess, uh, at the very centre of her body armour, fixed onto her breastplate, you find the image of a female head with writhing snakes for her hair. This is the head of Medusa, one of the three mythical sisters known as the Gorgons, and it's one of the most potent ancient symbols of male mastery over the destructive danger that the very possibility of female power represented. And it's no accident that we find her decapitated and proudly paraded as an accessory by this decidedly unfemale female deity. Now, there are many versions, many ancient versions of Medusa's story, but one famous one um, has her originally being a beautiful woman who is raped by the god Poseidon in a temple of Athena. And Athena promptly transformed her as punishment for that sacrilege. And notice that it's the rape victim that's getting punished here, not the rapist. Athena transforms her into a dangerous, monstrous creature with snakes for her hair and a deadly capacity to turn to stone anyone who looked her in the face. It then, in due course, became the task of the Greek hero Perseus to kill this monstrous woman 
and he cut her head off by using his shiny shield as a mirror so he could avoid having to look directly at her because if he looked directly at her as he killed her, he'd be dead. He, first of all, used that head that he'd got as a weapon himself, since even in death, it retained the capacity to petrify the enemy, to turn them to stone. But eventually, he presented it to Athena herself, who displayed it on the front of her own armour. One message, I think, being, you know, take care not to look too directly at this goddess, because she's got a petrifying Medusa looking back at you. Now, it did not need Freud to see that those snaky locks were somehow connected with a implied, at least, claim to phallic power. This is the classic myth in which the dominance of the male is violently reasserted against the illegitimate power of the woman. And Western literature, culture and art have repeatedly returned to it in those terms. The bleeding head of Medusa is a very familiar sight in our own modern galleries and amongst our own modern masterpieces. And it's often loaded with interesting and, and tricky extra questions about what is the power of the artist to represent an object which nobody should look at. It's, a, it's, a very, uh, it's appealed to actually quite a lot of radical painters and sculptors. Caravaggio in 1598 did an extraordinary version here of the decapitated head uh, with, it said, his own features. Uh, she's screaming in horror, blood is pouring out, and the snakes of her hair are still writhing. A few decades earlier, Benvenuto Cellini did a bronze one showing Perseus uh, with the head of Medusa. It still stands, and you can still see it, in Florence in the Piazza della Signoria. The hero is depicted trampling on the mangled corpse of Medusa and holding her severed head up in the air, again with the blood and the gunge in bronze pouring out of it. What's extraordinary to me is that this beheading remains, even now, a cultural symbol of opposition to women's power. Angela Merkel is always having her features superimposed onto Caravaggio's bloody image. Merkel is on the right here, by the way. Right. <laughs> and our own Theresa May was once dubbed the Medusa of Maidenhead, in the magazine of the Police Federation. Um, the Medusa comparison might be a bit strong, the Daily Express responded this terrible calumny. We all know that Mrs May has beautifully coiffed hair. <laughs> May perhaps got off lightly compared with Dilma Rousseff 
who drew a very short straw uh, as president of Brazil when she had to open a major Caravaggio show in Sao Paulo. The Medusa was, of course, in it, uh, and Rousseff in front of the very painting. Oh, there's a... There we've got another uh, rather nicer one of um, uh, Angela Merkel. Uh, uh, Rousseff in front of the very painting um, proved uh, an irresistible photo opportunity. Uh, president, you know, plus Gorgon. Right? But it is with Hillary Clinton that we see the Medusa theme at its starkest, and I think its very nastiest. Predictably, perhaps, there were plenty of images produced by Trump supporters in the presidential campaign showing her with snaky locks. But the most horribly memorable of them adapted Benvenuto Cellini's bronze, which was a much better fit than the Caravaggio because it wasn't just a head, it also included the heroic male victorious adversary and killer. All you needed to do was to superimpose Trump's face onto that of the killer Perseus and give Clinton's features to the severed head. It was, I imagine, in the interests of taste that the mangled body on which Perseus tramples in the original was omitted. Now, if you crawl around some of the darker recesses of the web, you can find some very nasty images of Obama, but they are in the web's darkest recesses. The scene of Perseus Trump swaggering with his sword and brandishing the bloody, dripping, oozing head of Medusa Clinton was very much part of the everyday domestic American de decorative world. You could buy it on T-shirts and vests, on coffee mugs, on laptop sleeves, and on tote bags, sometimes with the logo Triumph, sometimes Trump. I think you need to think about that. Probably needs a moment or two to take in that normalisation of gendered violence, which we have also seen here, and the murder of Joe Cox would be one thing that you'd want, sadly, to point to. So if anybody started out feeling this evening a bit doubtful about the cultural embeddedness of the exclusion of women from power or of the continuing strength of classical ways of formulating and justifying that, well, I'm going to give you Trump and Clinton, Perseus and Medusa, and, in a way, rest my case. But, of course, it isn't enough to rest the case there without saying what we might actually do about this. What would it take to resituate women on the inside, not the outside of power? Now, on that question, I think we have to distinguish between an individual perspective and a more communal general one. If we look at some of the women who have, quotes, made it, we can see some of the tactics and strategies behind their success, which don't merely come down just to aping male idiom. One that many of those women share is a capacity in different ways to turn the symbols that usually disempower women to their own advantage. Margaret Thatcher seems to have done that with her handbags, 
so that eventually the most stereotypically female accessory became a verb of political power, as in to handbag. Right? And I suppose that uh, at an incomparably more junior level, um, I did something similar uh, when I went to my first interview for an academic job in Thatcher's heyday, as it happens. Um, I bought a pair of blue tights, especially for the occasion. It was not my usual fashion choice, right? But the logic was really satisfying. If you interviewers, I thought, are going to be thinking that I'm a right blue stocking, then let me show you that I know that's what you're thinking and that I got there first. Right? <laughs> Still recommend my female students to try the blue stocking trick, right? As for Theresa May, it may be a bit too early to say, and I think there is a possibility, I think we have to reckon with a possibility, that we may end up looking back to her as a woman who was put in power in order to fail. I'm, I'm trying very hard not to compare her to Clytemnestra here. But I do sense that her shoe thing and the kitten heels and all that are one of the ways in which she shows that she's refusing to be packaged into that male template. She's also rather good, like Thatcher was, at exploiting the weak spots in the armoury of traditional Tory male power. The fact that she's not part of that clubbable boy's world, that she's not one of the lads, has to some degree helped her carve out independent territory for herself. She's made power and freedom out of the exclusion. And she's also famously allergic to mansplaining. Many women could, I'm sure, share perspectives and tricks like that. But to be honest, the big issues that I'm trying to confront and really aren't solved by a series of tips on how we can cleverly exploit the status quo. And I don't think either that patience is very likely to be the answer. Let's just wait for gradual change to happen. It very likely will happen, gradually. And in fact, given that women in this country have had the vote for less than 100 years, I think we shouldn't sometimes, we shouldn't forget to congratulate ourselves um, both women and men, on the changes that we brought about. I think it's not all gloom. That said, if the deep cultural structures legitimating women's exclusion are as deep as I have argued, then gradualism is likely to take far too long for me. Thank you very much. And I think we've got to be more reflective, honestly, about what power is, what it's for, and how it's measured. But in another way, if women are not perceived to be fully within the structures of power, isn't it the power that we need to redefine, not the women? Uh, so far, I have tended to follow the usual path in talking about women's power. I've largely been referring to national politicians and had half an eye on CEOs, journalists, television executives, and so on. This gives a very narrow version of what power is, largely correlating it with public prestige, or in some cases, notoriety. It's very high-end in the traditional sense, and it's bound up 
with the glass ceiling image of power, which not only, as I said before, still effectively positions women on the outside of power, but also imagines the female pioneer as the already successful superwoman whom just a few last vestiges of male prejudice are keeping from the absolute top, right? As you see in this slide. I mean, who climbs a ladder in shoes like that? You know, only, perhaps Theresa May would, I don't know. To be honest, I don't think that glass ceiling model speaks to most women who, even if they're not aiming to be president of the United States or company boss, still rightly feel that they want some stake in power. And it certainly looks as if it didn't appeal last year to enough American voters. Now, even if we do restrict our sights to issues of national politics, the question of how we judge women's success within that is very tricky anyway to answer. There are loads of league tables which chart the proportion of women, for example, within national legislatures. At the very top comes, ought to be a surprise if you've not looked at them, the very top comes Rwanda, where over 60% of the members of the legislature are women while the UK is almost 50 places down in the league table with roughly 30%. And strikingly, the Saudi Arabian National Council has a higher proportion of women in it than the US Congress. Now, it's hard not to lament some of those figures and to applaud others, and a lot has rightly been made about the role of women in post-Civil War conflict resolution in Rwanda, but the cynic in me does wonder if in some places, large numbers of women in the national legislature means that in that particular country, that is where the power is not. You only find a real lot of women in a place that isn't really powerful. Now, I'm also not entirely sure that we are straight with ourselves about what, if we do think about women in Parliament, what we want them for. A number of studies point to the role of women politicians in promoting legislation in women's interests on such, such things as childcare, equal pay, domestic violence. Fawcett Society report recently suggested a link, and it's probably true, between the 50-50 balance between women and men in the Welsh Assembly and the number of times all those women's issues were raised there. Now that's all well and good, and I'm certainly not going to complain about childcare and the rest getting a fair airing. But I'm not sure that it's a good idea that such things continue to be perceived as women's issues. And for me, at least, they're not the main reasons why we want more women in parliaments. Those reasons are much more basic. It is flagrantly unjust to keep the women out by whatever unconscious means we do so, and we simply can't afford to do without female expertise, whether it's in high-tech or childcare. And if that means fewer women get into the legislature, as it must do, if that means fewer men get into the legislature, as it must do, <laughs> um, I'm happy to live with that uh, and to look those losing men in the eye. But this is still treating power as very elite, coupled to public prestige, to the individual charisma of leadership, in inverted commas, and often 
to a degree of celebrity. It's also treating power very narrowly as a thing that only the few, mostly men, can possess or wield. That's exactly what is summed up by the image of Perseus or Trump brandishing his phallic sword. On those terms, women as a gender, not of course some individuals, but women as a gender are by definition excluded from it. You can't easily fit women into a structure that is already coded as male. You've got to change the structure. And that means thinking about power differently. It means, I believe, decoupling it from public prestige. It means thinking collaboratively about the power of followers, not just of leaders. And it means, above all, about thinking of power as an attribute or even a verb, you know, to power, not as a possession. Right? I'm talking about the ability to be effective, the ability to make a difference in the world, and the right to be taken seriously, together as much as individually. It's power in that sense that many women feel they don't have and they want. Why the popular resonance of mansplaining, despite the fact that many men intensely dislike that term? I think it hits home for me because it points straight to what it feels like not to be taken seriously. It's a bit like when I get lectured on Roman history on Twitter, right? <laughs> So, should we be optimistic for a change in the assumptions of what power is and what it can do and women's engagements with it? Maybe a little. I'm struck, for example, that one of the most influential political movements of the last few years, Black Lives Matter, was founded by three women. Most of us, I suspect, would recognise none of their names. But together, they did have the power to get things done in a different way. But I'm afraid I have to end on a piquant, if not slightly gloomy, note. I'm not sure that culturally we've got very far in subverting those foundational stories of power that act to keep women out of it, or turning them to our own advantage, like Thatcher and her handbag. I myself, this evening, have played the part of the pedant, objecting to Aristophanes' Lysistrata, being presented as if it was about girl power, but maybe that's what we should be doing. And despite the fact that there have been all kinds of well-known feminist attempts over the last 50 years to reclaim Medusa for female power, uh, not to mention the Versace logo, which is Medusa, it's made not a blind bit of difference to how she's been used in attacks on modern women politicians. Now, the continuing power of those traditional narratives is very nicely, though perhaps a bit fatalistically, captured also by Perkins Gilman, to whom, as I promised, I now return. There is a sequel to Herland, in which the narrator Van Dyke decides to escort the awful Terry back home to our land and to take with him his now wife from her land called Elador. The book's called With Her in Our Land. In truth, to put it mildly, 
our land does not show itself off very well, not least because Elador is introduced to it in the middle of World War I. And before long, the couple have ditched Terry and they decide to go back to her land. By now, Van and Elador are expecting a baby. She's learnt about sex by this point. Um, and you may have guessed it, in the very, very last words of this second novella, we read, In due course, a son was born to us. Now, Perkins Gilmore must, I believe, have been very well aware that there was no need for another sequel. Any reader in tune with the logic of the Western tradition will have been able to predict exactly who would be in charge of her land in 50 years' time. It would be that boy. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, as a classics teacher, you're a classics teacher, I teach kids. What do we do about this in lessons when we don't have time to go into the whole feminist debate and yet I'm, I'm teaching 15-year-olds and 14-year-olds about these myths and I'm desperately trying to put it into context. How do you do it? Um, uh, I, I try to look them right in the eye, you know, and say, look, if what... It, because um, I'm teaching undergraduates who, who you know, have made a, a consistent effort to opt in to studying this subject, I do say to them, if you wanted to study a load of feminists, you wouldn't have chosen classics, right? But also, I mean, I think that what, what you can get them to see, or what if I was doing, when I'm doing it slightly, a slightly more upbeat version, is that... The ancient world is preoccupied by gender because patriarchy is never easy with itself. Uh, but, uh, the fact that you have constantly to be rehearsing the wickedness of women, the way women might get out of out of control, the way you have to disempower them, you have to put them down, you know, go away at the war and they'll have, you know, been committing adultery before you've, you know, gone out the front door and they'll murder you in the bath when you get back. Um, that, in some ways, that's about patriarchy's desperation to say that it's, that it's natural. And so you can... I, I, I suppose what I try to do is to um, encourage... Um, a, a, a strongly feminist reading of these very uh, quite aggressive um, symbols and narratives, from which we haven't escaped. I mean, you know, the idea that there are blokes going around with Trump brandishing Hillary Clinton's head on their sweatshirts, you know, is unbelievable. But, you know, I, I, I suppose also, if they're doing Lysistrata, I just... Let him play it as a feminist play. Just tell him afterwards it wasn't. Uh, 
thank you very much for the talk. Um, in our uh, biological positions as unable to impregnate anyone else, what are the ways that um, women can get together and help each other out? Because I often, in my role, find other women um, who are perhaps alpha females, um, then actually turning against me. And mm. I think, we're on the same team, so yeah. how can we start to work together? Because when it's just one of us, I think it's, it's really hard. Um, could you speak to that? I think it's, that's a really difficult question, and I feel completely split by it. Because um, I, I went to an all-girls school, and I went to an all-female college, and um, my career has been helped and supported and looked after by other women. I'm a beneficiary of that. Uh, and I hope that, you know, as far as I can, I have, I have given to people coming later what I received. Right? Um, and uh, I think all you can do is do it. I don't think there's any way of insisting on it just by example. The, the thing that worries me about it is that it does become a kind of different way of judging women. And that, you know... There may be uh, you know, leading, powerful men in this world who get ticked off because they haven't been nice to, you know, they haven't been good role models for the young men coming up. But you don't hear about that often. And to some extent, though, you know, as I say, I've been, I'm, I'm totally wedded to the idea of women looking out for each other, people looking out for each other, really. Um, I, I, I do feel that that women are being asked in positions of leadership and power to do yet more. You know, they have to be the caring ones. They have to be the role models. They have to be, like where I come from, the tutor of women's students. They've got to do all that as well as do what the guys do. And I don't know how to keep the good side of that. Um, and also just let women get on with it. But I agree, it's, um, um, you know, we never thought that Margaret Thatcher was looking out for us, you know, and you're right, I mean, she should have been. Just following on for your previous um, answer, do you have any strong feelings about all female colleges or mixed <laughs> colleges? <laughs> I, well, I, you know, I'm a paid-up supporter. Um, <laughs> So, yes, I fully recommend Newnham College. If anybody here is thinking of doing classics, um, do come. It is bloody good. Um, I think that what I, I suppose I think would be more serious. So if, if you were inventing British society, education, schools and universities again, right? If you, know, if you had tabula rasa, you'd never sit down and say, oh, I know what we'll do, we'll segregate them, right? That would seem bonkers. But I found in Cambridge that even now, at a senior level, and I think it's different, very different at a junior level, so roughly 50% of undergraduates are now women. Uh, in my day, it was 11%. Um, but at a senior level, it's not like that. And uh, I, I in some ways, this is going back to the previous question, that uh, women can operate much more powerfully when they have a, when there's a critical mass of them, um, and uh, for a long time, Cambridge is divided into colleges and faculties. I was in the faculty; I was the only woman. 
There's 26 blokes lecturing and me. Uh, had I not had you know, a place that I could go for lunch um, where I didn't feel like a freak, I mean, it's quite, uh, to be fair, it was quite fun feeling like a freak. I didn't, you know, I, and I probably, let's be honest, I probably profited from it in all kinds of ways. But it wasn't particularly comfortable. And, you know, my learning how to be a woman who spoke up was done through a, being an institution where there's a critical mass of other women. I hope in a hundred years. You know, it would be lovely to think it wasn't needed. I bet, I bet it is, but it'd be nice to hope it wasn't. So I'm not, I'm not a, um, a kind of a separatist by ultimate conviction. I'm a separatist because of practical politics within the academy or anywhere. Hi. Um, thank you very much for your talk. I was just wondering if you could say a bit more maybe about the effectiveness or probably ineffectiveness of, of reclaiming, I guess, images such as the Medusa head. Um, yeah. And yeah. if you don't reclaim them, how do you then create new yeah. images to yeah. counteract those? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it is quite interesting because we've been... Um, no, you haven't because you're too young. <laughs> Through my... I have witnessed over my career all kinds of abuse being reclaimed. Um, whether that's queer or black or whatever. Um, what is striking is that, and I can only observe, and I'm not sure I can solve, I know I can't solve, um, I can observe that within many of these really, really kind of culturally embedded symbols, despite huge efforts um, to reclaim, it, it it hasn't worked in popular culture. I mean, perhaps the Versace symbol uh, of Meduse was one sign of it. But I can't remember when um, uh, Sisu's famous article on Medusa was making that, the laughter of Medusa. Um, but it, it, has had, it has had a huge amount of attention within modern psychoanalytical, classical literature and absolutely zero impact in the popular world. Zero. I mean, I, I didn't, until I started preparing these lectures, I didn't, this lecture, I didn't know. I mean, I'd, I'd just seen a couple of Medusas of Clinton, but I'd had no idea that it was so domesticated. And I just, you know, I don't know what you do because you, you know, you see I mean, I think that is what Thatcher did with the handbag. I think you can make, you can make mini personal bits of reclamation. Um, you know, or me in the blue stockings is a personal bit of reclamation. But isn't a cultural bit of reclamation. We, you know, we go out, you know, to Tottenham Court Road, there's not a load of feisty women wearing blue stockings, you know. Um, so th these are always terribly kind of internalist ways of doing it. And somehow you shouldn't knock that. Because it's one of the reasons why I said, look, you know, you can. I don't think that the ways individual women manage that is a recipe for big social change. But it's quite interesting to see that they do and that they're consistently in the same kind of uh, way. And I just don't understand. I really don't. I mean, you know, when 
you know, when I was a teenager, you know, you would, you know, in, in right on, you know, gender okay um, meetings, the idea of using the word queer was so outrageous, you'd have been sent out, right? And now, you know, that word has been re reclaimed for queer politics, queering everything, and it's great. But Medusa hasn't, and none of these other things have. Um, I don't know why. But you're, I mean, that observation is perfectly correct. It's a bit gloomy, sorry. <laughs> ah, maybe these are the answers coming. Thank you. Um, in the context of political power um, here in Britain, I wonder what you think about uh, the impact of positive discrimination and all-women shortlists, especially as those women were dismissed as Cameron's cuties or Blair's no. babes. No. Thank you. I'm, I broadly support it as a tactic on the grounds that um, possibly what you need to do is to get this critical mass. Maybe that's, and the, uh, the, maybe the turning of some of those women into victims, which they have been by that kind of abuse, may be a, an okay price to pay. Maybe that, maybe that is a good political decision. I don't think it gets to the root of it, but I think sometimes disguising the problem can, in the long term, help solve it. Because it, somehow it changes things, even if it's not dealt with the, the really deep underbelly. It's kind of made us look at people differently. Um, but I think that it's, wherever you see this, I mean, you, you, you see that the, the women who are supposedly, uh, as it were, the beneficiaries of it are, are in many ways the victims. And you, you know, this is not, in terms of the gossip, not the truth, I think, of academe, but the gossip of it would be, oh, you know, she only got on the shortlist because she was a woman. Um, you know, it, it's another form of undermining. Right? Another example I thought that I would have liked to talk about was, you know, just was the idea of being thick. Because, you, know, you know, Harriet Harman, you know, who is a good and has been a very effective politician. If you put into Google harm and thick, you'll come up with endless stuff, right? And it's the idea that, that she is not capable. I then tried putting into Google Cameron thick. And you, you found a couple, but it was a completely different order. Cameron is claimed to be thick when he's done something really stupid with his bicycle, right? Harmon gets repeatedly accused of being somehow systemically stupid. And that is not right. Um, you spoke about Leicestra, and in that play, women are given access to this erotic power. Uh, that's how they exert it, is kind of sexual dominance over men. Um, that's just like what women are, you know. Well, they're, they're always like, should have four. And it does feel like women have been allowed to empower themselves in that way, in a way that we haven't been allowed to empower ourselves in politics or in the media or in mm. academia. Yeah. And I was just wondering if you could talk about kind of sex and mm. women and power. I mean, I think that, that the Aristophanes play is complicated because... Um, when it now gets played, it does get played like that. And, there, and that is not wholly illegitimate. 
No, no, it is, there are passages in um, the Lysistrata in which you can see that women are, um, are calculating their own and calibrating their own sexual power. Now, in the ancient, I don't know what I think about the modern world. There's <laughs> um, a tricky one. In relation to the ancient world, it is always in their disfavour. You know that part of this, um, part of the kind of patriarchal fixation, is that as well as them being weak, stupid, not capable of managing whatever, they are a kind of possibly irrepressible bundle of desire, right? Which is going to get you, you know? So it is not kind of, um, you know, aren't they gorgeous? And it's not even a sort of elegant kind of sexuality. It is really dangerous, you know? You let women, you know, you, you let women go and let me tell you, what they get up to and what they think. And it's even worse with older women, you know? So you come in, you know, what can you imagine? The, the sexuality of the 60-year-old is so scary. <laughs> now, you know, in a way to go back to the kind of the inverting and the subverting of this, um, you know, although, as I say, I'm terribly finger-waggy about Leicester, um, I think it is a place where you know, I ought to get off my pedantic high horse and perhaps ought to say, look, let's see that, you know, we can see something in sexual power here. We can see it in this play. Go and play it for all it's worth, and I don't give a toss that it's not what Aristophanes meant. You know, because that might help us, but it's, it is certainly not what Aristophanes meant. Sadly. Thanks for listening. You can unlock the entire LRB archive for free for 24 hours by visiting lrb.co.uk forward slash open.